0: The Poe Studies Association presents Hi, and welcome to PoeCast, the Poe Studies Association podcast, where we discuss Edgar Allan Poe and track recent trends in Poe studies. I'm your host, Caleb Doan, visiting professor in the English department at Grand Valley State University. Our episodes are produced by GVSU's Digital Studio. Today's guest is Dr. Kelly Ross, associate professor at Ryder University and specialist in early and 19th century American and African American literature. Among other writings and accomplishments, she co-edits the journal, Poe Studies, History, Theory, Interpretation, and contributed to the Oxford Handbook of Edgar Allan Poe. Our discussion today focuses on her first book, Slavery, Surveillance, and Genre in Antebellum United States Literature, published by Oxford University Press this year in 2023. Hi, Kelly, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Caleb. It's so great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Can you start by telling us about yourself and the origins of your book?
1: Sure. I'm from Virginia. And I went to undergrad at William Mary, and then I got my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. My first job out of grad school was at GVSU, where you are, and um, now I'm at Ryder University. And the origins of the book are Poe. <laughs> so I I read the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym in grad school, and I was just fascinated by it, um, especially the fact that it was published in 1838, so before the first Dupin tale, which is generally thought of as the first detective story, but in him there's all those same tropes of detection, like secrecy and disguise and concealment and radiocination and tracking fugitives. And it's also Ho's most extended treatment of race. And so I was just interested in that conjunction. And that led me to To the book to sort of try to figure out why that is. And I realized that those tropes that we would later associate with detective fiction in the Antebellum period are really strongly associated with the surveillance and control of black bodies.
0: Uh, Yeah, your book is it's so exciting to read, and I think it's bound to influence the field of American literary studies, just the way that it opens these new critical framings of these canonical antebellum works and these understudied ex-slave narratives, and just re, re-crafting our idea of detective fiction, or as you say, detection fiction. Could you define these two really key topics for us, uh, surveillance and surveillance for our audience? And then could you explain how these concepts of detection function in and structure those selected works?
1: Sure. Yeah. And thank you for those really kind words. I appreciate that. Um, so Steve Mann is a surveillance theorist and he coins the term surveillance watching from below by replacing the prefix sur in surveillance above with sue below. So surveillance is watching from above. Suveillance is watching from below. And that is in reference to the position of power of the person who's observing in relation to the, the, what they're observing, right? So watching from below is someone with less power, watching someone with more power. And then Simone Brown in her book, Dark Matters, she's a sociologist and she focuses on the importance of race to surveillance studies. And so she's interested in the dynamics of racializing surveillance, which is the control and tracking of black bodies um, through in the antebellum period, it would be people like slave patrollers, overseers, slave catchers. And then the flip side of that is dark surveillance. so the the way that people um enslaved people are always watching back, you know, watching from below. And she goes on to say that dark surveillance isn't just watching. It's also using the experiential insight of plantation slavery to resist surveillance, racializing surveillance. So that's kind of the theoretical framework that I'm working with, um, Simone Brown's work in particular. And then I'm building on that and looking at how those dynamics of racialized surveillance play out in literature. Mm -hmm. Um, So I start with um, fugitive slave narratives. And I'm really interested in that period of that genre from 1825 to 1840 which is generally not the period that people pay most attention to um you know douglas is later uh people kind of pay more attention to the 1840s 1850s but 1825 was the first fugitive slave narrative william grimes's narrative and then 1840 is when the institutional abolitionist movement really becomes a a strong force with a attendant print culture that shapes the parameters of the genre. So I'm looking at this period where they're much more idiosyncratic. They're less pressured by, uh, the abolitionist movement's agenda. And in that period, these ex-slave narrators are really focused on the dynamics of surveillance and surveillance. And so Those slave narratives, because they're not kind of like geared to the moral suasion program of the American Anti Slavery Society, these authors have more freedom to focus on the dynamics of watching from below. And they really detail like all the ways in which um, enslaved people are being surveilled and controlled but also they reveal the ways that enslaved people are watching back. So, you know, for example, William Grimes talks about evading slave patrols by passing as white. And he really goes into detail about the mechanics of that. Um, Or he talks about how he um, uses knowledge that he gains about his overseer in order to negotiate for better treatment from the overseer, you know, so he's taking agency and, and using the results of his spying in order to create slightly better conditions for himself. So basically like I start the book by really foregrounding the dynamics of racialized surveillance but also the agency of enslaved people in these slave narratives where they're really like putting themselves um forth as experts in this area that they are essentially, you know, surveillance theorists and they're showing the agency of enslaved people in watching and using the knowledge that they gain from watching in order to escape or rebel or create better conditions for themselves. And then from there, in the rest of the book, I go on to look at how that kind of works in various literary genres and literary works. What I think is really important about literature and why this book brings something else to the field in addition to Simone Brown's amazing work, is that, you know, she's a sociologist. She's looking at the real world biopolitics of power. These literary works are imaginative, and sometimes they upend the real world biopolitics, you know, and and they imagine different configurations of power. And so we can kind of see these really fascinating um, literary engagements that destabilize that binary of racializing surveillance and dark surveillance or you know the same person can be both a surveillant and a surveillance at the same time and you can have black overseers like babo in benito Sereno. um you can have white surveillance um like in frederick Douglass's um the heroic slaves so there's all these ways that you know literature kind of mixes this up and shows that this binary isn't the only way to look at things. And it gives us kind of like worlds of possibility to examine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and one way that you do that is through your look at genre and your specific view of genre analysis. Could you just take a, a second to explain that to our listeners? Because I think that it's really helpful as you think of you know how literature is impacting the real world, even as it is distinguished from it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think genre is a way of triangulating between readers, writers, and society. Um, And so it's, you know, allows us to think about the way that socio-historical forces shape and pressure literary works. And when we read, we bring those expectations to the works and those expectations change over time. And so like when we're doing genre analysis, Instead of saying like this belongs here and this belongs there and like this is a good detective story and that's not or, you know, gothic novel or whatever. I'm more interested in how how we draw the parameters of genre at different moments in time, like what belongs in the genre changes according to what we need as a society and like what questions we're asking. And so, you know, there's a moment where detective fiction gets kind of like crystallized at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. And they look back and say, oh, Poe invented that. But that is really end of the 19th, early 20th century, socio-historical forces that are conditioning that moment of selection of Poe, as opposed to if we look at it from the perspective of like the history of surveillance and policing of enslaved people in the Americas, we see the genre really differently. We place slave narratives at the forefront. Right. So and, and that's the same with like any genre, you can trace like how genres change over time and in response to what social and historical pressures.
0: Great. In in chapter two of your book, like you're saying, you you start to analyze pose detection fiction alongside Charles Ball's Slavery in the United States. Since some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with Ball, can you introduce him and his narrative to us and then talk about your comparison of inconspicuous and conspicuous section in their works?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, Charles Ball was an enslaved man. He was enslaved in Maryland and he was married. And so he was uh, born probably 1781, I believe. So, you know, late. 18th, early 19th century. He was enslaved. He was married. He was sold at one point and forced to march to South Carolina in a slave coffle. Um, And then eventually he was enslaved in Georgia. And from Georgia, he escaped and walked back to Maryland. And he reunited with his wife and children and then lived as a self-emancipated free man for 20 years in Maryland. Eventually, he was recaptured and re-enslaved. And while he was re-enslaved, his wife and children, he remarried, but and they were legally free, but they were captured, kidnapped, sold into slavery. And so by the time he escapes again from this second enslavement, um, he finds out that his wife and children are lost to him. They've been sold, and there's no way of finding them again. And so he just stays in Pennsylvania um, instead of going back to Maryland. And that's his narrative of this, it's called Slavery in the United States. And he first publishes it in 1836, as told to Isaac Fisher, who's a, a white anti-slavery supporter. And then it gets picked up by the American Anti-Slavery Society and republished in their Cabinet of Freedom book series. And then it gets republished throughout the century, you know, in different forms and abridged and that kind of thing. It's It's quite popular. Um, and it's a fascinating narrative. Um, so in that narrative, Charles Ball actually solves a murder mystery. Um, there's like a little embedded murder mystery story where a white woman is kidnapped and Charles Ball is blamed for the murder. And so he ends up having to or ch- you know, chooses to solve the mystery in order to prevent himself from being tortured and killed as punishment. And in that little story, he uses the techniques of surveillance to to find the, the kidnappers and solve the crime. And he leads the, there's a white posse who's out to try and find, you know, the, the criminals and he teaches them, he guides them through the techniques of surveillance in order to find these criminals. But then at the end, you know, he solves the murder, he, he finds the criminals and the posse just, they don't give him any credit. You know, they just, they're like, well, we're not going to kill you. And that's, that's the best that you're going to get. So that's what I call inconspicuous detection. He's using the techniques of surveillance that are usually kept covert, right? Because if you're trying to escape or um, foment rebellion or, you know, even just like visit a loved one at night, you want to keep those techniques secret. You don't want to call attention to them. These techniques are generally inconspicuous. And then also Charles Ball doesn't get any credit for for the solution that he provides, right? He is dismissed immediately and everyone forgets about him. And I compare that to Dupin, who, like I said before, gets credit for being the first detective, literary detective, right? Poe gets credit for inventing the detective story. So his contribution to the genre is conspicuous as opposed to these other authors you know particularly authors of color whose contributions to the genre have not been recognized and are inconspicuous for that reason and then also pose dupin's methodology he has this narrator who mystifies his way of solving the crime and then uh, publicizes him right so dupin gets credit for solving the crime for being this brilliant mastermind because he has this essentially publicist working on his side (laughs) and um in the narrator and so his detection is very conspicuous and both he and poe get credit for it so that's the the contrast i'm trying to make there between inconspicuous and conspicuous detection
0: and you also discuss your reading of pym which you say the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym is really where Poe first develops detection fiction for himself in his oeuvre. You persuasively cast this new reading of the novel's much discussed shifting power dynamics by marking Pym's performances of surveillance and surveillance. Can you further explain how the relationship between power, race, and modes of detection works in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, That's really where this book started. So I have a a lot that I like about I think all of us are just fascinated with this book, right? It's so obsessive. Yeah. So the question is power, race, and modes of detection. I'm going to try and rein it back in. Um, So basically, I think what's happening in Pym is Pym learns how to surveil by occupying the position of a escaping slave at the beginning of the novel, right? He's in the hold of the ship and he's, you know, disguised, he's concealed and he's, he's suffering. He's, um, you know, trying to make this journey to get out of this area without the rest of the ship finding out that he's there. Uh, There's all these racialized illusions that come up in that section. And so, Poe is putting Pym into the place of a person of color, and he's living that experience on the Grampus. Right. And then, um, when Pym finally gets out of that situation, he uses that experience of being a disempowered, marginalized person, and the, you know, sort of like the lived experience of that, in order to overthrow the counter mutiny that has taken over the ship he, um, you know, he bands together, they they don't have any weapons, they don't have any power, but they want to take over. And so they use Pym's techniques of surveillance, disguise, concealment, um, spying, and, you know, like kind of creating this masquerade in order to overthrow a more powerful um, group of people. And so in that initial... Series of episodes, Poe is acknowledging the power of surveillance and the way that it can give disempowered people a way to um, resist and overcome, and and that it, that it's a way of knowing the world that comes out of this disempowered, um, marginalized experience. But then, in the very act of overthrowing the counter mutineers, Pym puts white face on right so he he dresses up as a ghost and he uh whitewashes his face and so i read that scene as poe disavowing the racial origins of that technique of surveillance and so turning Pim back into a white man after his experience of being in the position of a person of color an escaping slave and so then after Pim regains power um on the ship, he, you know, lots of crazy things happen, but eventually yes. he, gets, <laughs> he gets the Salal and he is now in the position of power and he is ignorant because of that. Like he experiences what I call later in the book white oversight, in that he thinks he's safe and unseen. He doesn't realize the dark skinned Solalians are scrutinizing him because white oversight is a way of seeing the world where you take for granted the fact that white people are safely invisible because you've organized the world to make that the case and so you overlook the power or the surveillance of uh, people who are watching you and so Pim doesn't realize that the Solalians are watching him and his white crewmates. And the Solalians eventually massacre them by organizing this very clever earth landslide. And they kill almost everyone from the crew um, except for Pym and uh, Dirk Peters. And so the the situations keep flipping, right? So like Pym keeps moving between a white man with power and a, a disempowered person of color and, you know, or the position of that. Poe keeps like flipping that over and over and over throughout the novel and Pim succeeds when he draws on the resources of surveillance and fails when he occupies this blind position of white oversight. But at the very end of the book, Poe presents what I say is a precursor to Dupin because you, you get this huge white figure um, that's going to sort of come in and save everything. The, the white, figure so out the end what's overpowering and he's going to come in and have this power that Pim doesn't have and he's going to be able to contain the threat of dark surveillance
0: yes that was a very <laughs> compact overview of the whole novel through okay. those power dynamics perfect thank you yeah
1: it's hard to you know there's so much you want to say about it and get into it but
0: <laughs> yes absolutely I- Yes, I can even. (laughs) Yeah, it is great. I know you wrote
1: on it, too. And I I love your article on
0: archipelagic resistance in the novel. That's beautiful. It's a great article. Well, thank you. In in that chapter, you also state that that Pym, Poe's first detective fiction, right, identifies the threat of cooperative black resistance and that Poe increasingly minimizes and even represses that threat throughout the Dupin trilogy. Can you chart Poe's creative progression for us? I mean, I think ultimately the the chapter challenges, and we've already you know, mentioned this. It challenges the idea that murders of the in the room morgue just came out of nowhere to invent the genre. Um, but specifically, you, you know, what we're talking about here is how Poe's creative progression um, works in terms of thinking about race.
1: Yeah, I think. Um so in Pym, it's all out there it's he's he's really explicitly thinking about race and the power dynamics of watching from above and below and how that aligns or doesn't align or can be flipped and you know changed in terms of race in murders in the room morgue he starts suppressing that and i think by perline letter he's suppressed it it's completely off the page you know um and so that would be the progression i'm i'm thinking of like it's a it's a it's a uh repression or i don't want to make it psychological but um it's a you know like it's an occlusion i guess of the racial aspect that's right there on the surface in pym so in murders in the reward but it's it's still there it's still present and people have done amazing work you know uh on on the racial, I mean, in romancing the shadow, there's a couple of chapters on the story, and Ed Whitley has talked about that. And so, in murders in the room, where people have read that story as a allegory of slave rebellion, and I think it's that, but I also think it's slightly more than that. And I think not. I think it's uh, linked to recapturing fugitive enslaved people, um, and the pursuit and tracking that that entails. And so, um, I look at these advertisements that jailers would put in newspapers when they had, a, a, a when someone had recaptured a, or captured a fugitive enslaved person, they would be put in jail and the jailers would advertise and say to the enslaver, we have this. Person will they would say, property, we have your property, come and get them. And that's what Poe is using for Dupin's advertisement, right? Like it's, I mean, it's very, very similar in form. And that's how Dupin catches the sailor in murders in the room ward. He's not trying to catch the orangutan. He's trying to catch the sailor. And so I'm talking about him as an enslaver catcher, and, rather than a slave catcher. And so I think like it's there in that story and it's still uh, it's still miserable you can still read it but it's moving farther and farther away it's getting you know kind of like submerged and then in uh, mysteries of murray roger he there's it's harder to see the racial aspect, but I think what's interesting there is the collective aspect that the the police think there's a collective at work, and and Dupin breaks that down and says no, it's individual. So he's kind of moving in the first story, he's deracializing and making it about white man versus white man. In mysteries, he's decollectivizing and individuating and making it one versus one, and then in Purling Letter, he's making it himself versus himself like it's so um individuated and de socio-historicalized that's not a word but you know it's <laughs> like, um it's 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 turned from anything rooted in in socio-historical context to just internal psychodynamics um and so i think you can kind of track that progression where he's using the same techniques and it's all kind of coming from the same concerns and interests, but it's moving farther and farther away from the socio-historical context and it's becoming more and more individuated. And that really is like what characterizes detective fiction for so long. You know, that that's the classical model of detective fiction is this like puzzle game of mind versus mind. And I think that's why it's been so hard to see the genre as anything but this conservative you know, like reestablishing social power, reestablishing um, the status quo because of perline
0: butter. Mm-hmm. Right. At the end of the chapter, you know, building on this, you, you say, for Poe, awareness of Black surveillance does not translate into sympathy for Black people. Instead, it presents a problem to be solved. Rather than offering a solution, though, poe shifts discursive registers from socio-historical anxiety about black resistance to the linguistic realm of cryptography thereby replacing a violent threat with an arcane puzzle uh i mean in some ways you've you've kind of commented on this shift to the linguistic realm but do you think and, and you've discussed its impact on detective fiction but um, it makes Poe harder to pin down in a lot of different ways do you think this helps account for some critical readings of Poe as uh, a critic of nationalism and imperialism despite his often reactionary politics
1: yeah absolutely I think um yeah I I think that's a really insightful way of putting it um that you you know you you also talked about this in your article about um, it, you know, Pym, uh, and how Poe in his reviews is pretty forthright about like nationalism and you know pro. He's in favor of the South Seas expedition, and and it's a much more direct. The politics are much more direct and easily accessible. In the fiction, it's not. It's weird and it's difficult to pin down, as you're saying, and and so like you can kind of look at the criticism versus the you know, like Poe's literary criticism or reviews versus the fiction. And you can see kind of this dynamic of the more he moves away from social historical context, the the harder it is to pin him down. And I think that's what I was saying at the beginning, like why I think literature is such an important part of this field of surveillance study is that we're not stuck in the actual politics of the day. Right. But, Poe can imagine these other situations and the problems and and catastrophes that arise when other people are in power besides the people who are currently in power and so because he can imagine that then it's hard to say like is he imagining that and he wants it or is he just imagining that because he has an imagination you know and and Yeah, I don't know. I I think um, that's probably why the people that we read are the people that we read. It's the people who allow us to kind of like think through problems that continue and um, problems that speak to us, you know, um, and and not just shutting down or or like answering a question.
0: Speaking of thinking things through one one text that that you didn't include in your chapter on Poe was Hop Frog which really? is has often been read as this kind of like virtual slave mutiny did you consider adding that into the book or do you think that that you could there's an interpretation available like through the realm of surveillance and surveillance
1: yeah I I never thought of including that because it didn't occur to me <laughs> as, as being about you know I mean, yes, racial, certainly, but not the surveillance surveillance. But, um, yeah, I guess the the way that the chandel the the orangutans are lifted, you know, on the chandelier, hoisted um, above the crowd. And so the whole crowd is looking up at them and they're looking out at the crowd. But then Hot Frog is above them. You know, there is certainly like a dynamics of vision that is staged vertically. Um, and, and then there's the masquerade obviously as well. And, um, you know, so like, I do think there's a lot that you could do with the masquerade aspect of it in terms of Babo and Benito Serino yeah and the way that Hopfog, Hopfrog is staging this masquerade in order to take power and enact revenge, um, or, or, you know, rebel. he's doing it through this, this masquerade. Uh, performance that like turns the king's weakness against him like he recognizes the the king's weakest point because he's always watching him and he figures out how to take advantage of that and he does that via masquerade and that is what leads the king and his ministers death and that it's presented or staged as a elevation of these people but then hot frog is above them watching over them
0: yeah in some ways that image show all of the complexities that you talk about and how some it's sometimes they overlap uh in different ways or those yeah. positions are so kind of fluid sometimes
1: exactly yeah
0: i certainly recommend everyone to check out um Slavery, surveillance, and genre—not—not not just you know. Chapter two is amazing, but then the whole book is is really really worth reading. So at this point, I'd like to shift from our focus on the book to talk a bit about process. So Kelly, could you talk to us about how you went into to researching and writing this book? Uh, do you have any particular insights you like to share? And maybe you if you want to talk about some research tips or some writing tips about how you uh, got yourself through the writing of the book. <laughs>
1: I it's I I feel like I shouldn't give anyone advice because you know it's such a struggle but um I guess that would be my advice just that it is a struggle and we all struggle um I think for me one of the biggest struggles that I had was that I was trying to bring together fields where people don't generally read the same things. um even though we all do American literature like the people who are interested in Charles Ball's Fugitive Slave narrative are often not the people who are interested in Poe's DuPan tales, you know? And so I was trying to bridge audiences and thinking about how to write in a way that would speak to both of those groups of people. So that I think that's what I struggled a lot with. That's what took me a long time. And the solution to that as best I found was just have as many people read your work as possible because people are incredibly generous in our profession and love to read you know we all just love to read and so um you know when I especially when I was a grad student and a a junior professor I I was really nervous about approaching people and asking if they would be willing to read a draft but you know, whenever I did, people are just so generous. So I, I, I wish I had kind of realized earlier that that's, that's okay to do. And, and that people are just really, really generous and kind and want to help you. Um, and so that's, that would be my advice is like, share your work early, share your work often and, you know, and then pay it back to other people when they ask you, but I think we all enjoy that kind of like conversation and trying to be aware that it's a long process and (laughs) you know like not beating yourself up if it
0: it takes you a while yeah it's just being being patient patient Um,
1: exactly (laughs) yeah
0: yeah well, it was you're worth all of the all of the <laughs> patience.
1: <laughs> That's really great.
0: Um, yeah. Um. One one cool thing about your work, and and it's evident in uh, slavery, surveillance, and genre, but it's also evident in your your chapter in the Oxford Handbook of Edgar Allan Poe uh, called "Deciphering Dupin," which connects Poe to computing and mass surveillance. Is the way that you connect the antebellum world to the present moment. Could you just talk a little bit about, about how you bridge those those two time periods and those two worlds?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But at
0: uh, um, the same world. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Um,
1: yeah, um, I think Jeff Insko, I really like his formulation in um, History, Abolition, and the Ever-Present Now. He talks about how the shape of our present motivates our particular historical interests in the first place so you know history is something that is it, it almost reverses cause and effect right so like we think of chronologically something happens and then we try and figure out we trace it back to the cause but the reason we're interested in that cause in the first place has to do with what's happening in our moment and and I think you know like you said there's it's a continuity between the antebellum period and now, and so many of our problems and issues that we have currently can be traced back to the antebellum period. And so like the article, the chapter you mentioned from the Oxford handbook pose at the dawn of the information age, which is strange to think of, but he was a big fan of Charles Babbage and Babbage invented these precursors to the modern computer in the 1820s and 1830s. And Poe was really interested in that. And he recognized the potential of Babbage's theories and popularized that. But he also recognized the pitfalls or the dangers of the what could happen when those theories became real, you know, um, when they became instrumentalized. And so Poe's stories are about the same concerns we have because you know Poe's thinking about like the problems of metadata, you know and the um, what what surveillance can do and and what it can do. Um, and so you know when we go back to those stories, we're thinking about those same issues and we can kind of think alongside of Poe and see the roots of those things in in his work and it's the same with the book, you know, racialized surveillance continues to harm people of color and we can see that in these earlier works but we can also see the continuity of resistance and bravery and courage and and recognize that agency that's always been there amongst people of color resisting this surveillance and think about how that might shed light on our current issues with police brutality and, you know, the way that bystanders are filming police police brutality and what happens to them when they film those videos. Um, so, yeah, I think, I guess, yeah, that's, um, I think the continuity is what allows me to make these connections between the antebellum period and our current moment.
0: As we round out our conversation, and I, I want to Talk about your your role here as the the co-editor of Post Studies, and since we have you, um, I want to talk about some of the uh, trends in post studies. So, what what uh, trends do you see in the scholarship now? Do you see any any new lines of uh, of work emerging? And do you have any advice or challenges for current or future post scholars?
1: Advice would be submit to Poe studies. (laughs) (laughs) We we would love to have your work. Um, I think one of the trends that I'm really excited about is um, embodied in our most recent volume, which just came out, um, which is the whole volume is a special feature called African American writers respond to Poe. And it's just an amazing volume. Emron and the guest editors, um, John Gruser and Tish Crawford did a phenomenal job there's creative pieces there's interviews there's critical essays it's it's amazing and you know it kind of picks up from romancing the shadow the book that uh, jerry kennedy and lillianne weisberg edited that came out in 2001 so it's you know more than 20 years old at this point and this new volume kind of thinks through like a lot of the ideas in the, you know, that volume raised, but in the context of all the things that have happened in the last 20 years, and especially in the last couple of years with the Black Lives Matter protests, And, you know, just it, I think um, it really opens up an exciting conversation that I'm, I, I hope is going to make an impact on the field as more and more people, and maybe more and more people who haven't thought about Poe as an author that they would like to work on I hope that it brings more people like that into our field because a lot of these authors that are in this piece the creative authors you know they're they're African-American authors and they talk about the impact Poe made on them and then they kind of like talk about the struggle and how they had to work through the uh, I, I don't want to say suffering, maybe suffering that Poe caused them. Be, their, their, their initial attachment to Poe um, then later caused them anguish. And so I, I think that th- those pieces will maybe inspire other people to think through um, what it means to write about Poe and, and not write about Poe and um, maybe bring more people to think about Poe who wouldn't have before because these authors might kind of like give them a path forward. Um, And I really think our field needs that, right? I mean, we, we need more voices, different voices. We need more perspectives, different perspectives, bringing their experiences to Poe and, and to what Poe does and, you know, the things that he's talking about. So I'm really excited about that volume. Um, I also think poem science seems to be a pretty exciting topic right now um i mean john Tresh's book i think has opened up a lot of new avenues for people um so yeah i and and poetry i'm always excited about poem poetry i want to read more about that (laughs) so i hope more people um you know return to post poetry
0: yeah all everything you said there just in it is amazing the continued relevancy of Poe and in all of these new and ex- mm. unexpected and exciting um, and sometimes problematic uh, you know, ways. Um, and yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. And uh, yeah, we're excited to check out that that new issue.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Caleb. This has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate all your thoughtful questions.
0: Thank you. Our next episode will stream in January, featuring for the first time two guests, Emran Esplan and Margarita Valle de Gado, both major Poe Studies scholars. This episode will mostly focus on their co-edited collections, Translated Poe and Anthologizing Poe, Editions, Translations, and Transnational Canons. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, Write me at PoCastmailbox at gmail dot com. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking Poe and tracking Poe studies trends with you all soon.